what we're seeing behind me, the water is running, is also part has been so old. So I'm always fascinated looking at these rivers flowing behind us, that the water that is here has been, you know, has a memory, has a long memory, and it's been seeing, it was here even, you know, before Rome was born, even before, you know, humans could colonize some of the areas that are now completely developed and technologically advanced. So this is fascinating. It tells us a lot also about the history of the Earth, how some processes change from scales to from millennia to centennial to decadal time scales. And what really, you know, struggles me is the power that we have to squeeze these changes in such amount of time, when I say we, humans, uh, and to make these changes to happen in such a quick way when it takes so long to build the ice sheet. Welcome to Part of the Planet podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. This is a special episode of Pod of the Planet. We are recognizing Climate Week here in New York City and around the entire world. And I want to encourage our listeners to check out our blog, uh, State of the Planet. There's lots of content coming out on Climate Week, uh, including a list of a number of events um, and other things to read up on the blog to refresh your knowledge on, on climate change in general. And um, yeah, and, and to, uh, to further that, um, we have a special episode uh, here with Kevin Krejcik, who is the Senior Editor for Science News at the Earth Institute. Kevin, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Q? Good. And uh, welcome to Pod of the Planet. This is your first uh, episode you're joining us with. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. You know, we uh, we, we share a cubicle at the office when we're in the office, but at the same time, you're the, you know, you're my closest colleague in proximity <laughs> and, and in other, and many other ways, but also we also, we have our backs to each other a lot during the course of the day. So, but, um, I got your back, got your back. <laughs> exactly. So welcome to Pot of the planet and really glad that you were able to do this interview with Marco Tedesco, a researcher up at Lamont on his new book, the hidden life of ice dispatches from a disappearing world. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book, Kevin? Yeah, so Marco um, is a, a, an ice scientist, basically. He studies the cryosphere, and that's um, ice sheets, glaciers, uh, sea ice. And it's, it's just sort of about his experiences doing that and kind of weaves in a lot of other stuff, including the science, the mythology, and just the, the sheer experience of being on the ice sheet. So, I, I, you know, I was really interested to talk to him. And actually, have traveled with him. Yeah. Um, so you know, we could we had a, a few little memories there. So yeah, you traveled to uh, Greenland uh, with Marco. When when was that exactly? Um, I think it was about. I think it was in the summer of two thousand and seventeen. Yeah. Okay. In the summer. Okay, so it's been a it's been been a few years. Um, do you uh, do you have any memories that stand out uh, during that trip? Yeah, well, you know, to get there, we, we drove on Greenland's longest road, which is uh, about 16 miles long. Okay. And you can just walk onto the ice sheet directly. It's, it's sort of a rare place. And once you're on there, you know, it's otherworldly. It's it's lifeless. There's there's no sound except the wind. Yeah. Uh, just ice underfoot. And, um, you know, it's just something that you wouldn't experience in normal life. Yeah, I can't quite imagine it. I You know, when I think of words like... Um like crevasse and, and things like that, you know, there were kind of words that 
elicit both, um, you know, danger and like beauty and awe at the same time. Uh, I don't know, did, this, I'm assuming, was this your first time being uh, in on any type of ice sheet in general or? Uh, no, I've been on glaciers and ice sheets before. Um, yeah. the, I've been, you know, in the Yukon and the high Andes and several other places. Yeah. Um, the thing about this one was that it was actively melting, mm-hmm. which I hadn't really seen before. And, um, you know, there were melt streams all over the place. We had to jump over them. Um, at one point we got to a river, a big rushing river in inside a canyon in the ice. Mm. And at, at the end of the river, it just sort of disappeared down this giant hole. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was a little scary to, to, to watch. It makes you feel very small. Uh-huh. Gosh. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, you, like you said, you've been to a lot of places. Uh, where does sort of Greenland, I guess, fit into all the other places you've been around the world in terms of, um, you know, whether it's stark beauty or just, you know, fear of your, for your life. <laughs> well, Greenland, you know, that's, that's one of the wildest places. Not too many people get, get to go to these spots. Um, in general, you know, I really prefer to go these, these remote extreme environments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the place where you would go as a tourist. You're going with a purpose. And generally you've got a teammate who knows how to get around safely. And that's, that's one of the great things about covering scientific expeditions is that you get to see things that most people will never see. Right. So, I mean, is there a basic approach that you take when you talk about or write about science? Um, I want people to understand why science is relevant to our lives. Right. So if I, I may write up a complicated study, it's not enough to just explain the results. You want to put it in context and, you know, how does it move the needle in terms of how do we understand yeah, so how let, the world works? Let me explain to our audience really quickly what, what you, you do an amazing uh, job of doing just that and, and distilling the science and and, and the work of the, the researchers and, and posting that on, on our, on our websites. And, um, and it's been, it's been great uh, working with you and, and, and just getting your perspective and, and through seeing science through your eyes, I guess. I'm wondering, uh, you know, do you like working with scientists? What's sort of, uh, how's, how's that experience been like? Oh, oh, no, no complaints. You know, I actually started out writing about crime and prisons and police, and that's uh-huh. a, actually a depressing topic that never changes. <laughs> and we've, we've been reminded of that, um, in, you know, recent months and weeks that, uh, that doesn't change very much. Um, but scientists, you know, they love what they do. They're overjoyed to talk to you. Yeah. And science is about discovery. There's always something new. And that's what I really like about it. You know, that, that, that we're continually discovering things about the world and I'm able to be there sometimes on the front lines and watching people do it. Yeah. Amazing. And so you talked to Marco Tedesco again uh, about his book. We'd be, I, I feel, I would feel a little remiss if we didn't talk about your book a little bit. Uh, you, you came out with a book uh, some time ago, The Barren Lands, right? What's, what's that about? And, and just, I mean, I, without getting too deep in the woods, I just want to give the audience a sense of uh, what your, what your history and what your background is like. Yeah. So sure. I've worked as a freelance writer for a long time in various journalism jobs, but um I read a, a newspaper article in the 1990s about a couple of geologists who found this huge diamond deposit way out on the Canadian tundra, mm-hmm. so-called barren lands. No trees, there's no people, there's no fences for a thousand miles, just rocks and wild beasts. So I, I did a, I started looking into how did these guys do it? How did they get to this crazy place? And uh, got the real life characters to cooperate and it turned into um I guess what you'd call scientific thriller with all kinds of dangerous treks and spy versus spy intrigues. It's got a lot of science, but mainly it's just a story about um, human endurance and greed and some really spectacular places. Still in print, by the way. 
Yeah, no, no, definitely. And I encourage everyone to, to check that book out, to check out Marco Tedesco's book. And uh, again, reminding all, everyone to go to State of the Planet and look up all the events and content that's coming out for Climate Week and get yourself active and informed. Um, so with that, thanks, Kevin, for again, for joining us. And, you know, like I said, since you're my closest colleague at the Earth Institute, we're going to be enlisting you uh, to do more of these uh, since you did such a great job. Um, so uh, we'll see. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Q. I'm, I'm hoping to see you in the cubicle sometime in, <laughs> I hope, the foreseeable future. Right. Who would ever think that the cubicle would be a, a place that we want to get back to as soon as possible? But uh, yes. I, lo <laughs> I long for the cubicle. <laughs> exactly. All right. Take and care, Kevin. see you. Bye-bye. Uh, Marco Tedesco, welcome to the Pot of the Planet. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I haven't seen you in a while. And um, in the meantime, you've come out with a new book about ice and your life as an ice scientist. Hi, Kevin. Nice to uh, nice to hear from you. And uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yes. So, yeah. Yeah, the book actually um, uh, came out on August 18th. Uh, and, uh, um, it is, uh, it has been my pleasure and has been a great experience to, to be able to synthesize some of my experiences, uh, professional, emotional, and personal to, uh, and share with the, you know, with the readers. Yeah. I love, I loved reading this book and you've devoted your career to studying what we call cryosphere that's frozen water and all its forms. And, um, I know much of that's been on the remote reaches of the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, your book is called The Hidden Life of Ice, Dispatches from a Disappearing World. Um, so let's just start with you reading just a snippet from it. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I'm going to grab and, it. And uh, just to set the uh, the stage, this is near the beginning where you're on a research expedition. Uh, you're camped yeah. on the Greenland ice. The ice is about a mile thick. You're hundreds of miles from land. The tent mate that you're sleeping with is a grad student who's never been someplace like this before. Right. Um, it's the middle and, uh, of the night. Just been a I'm big, loud sound. I'm happy to to read it. And if you want, I can put everything in the context then of the story. Yeah. Um, so it goes, it must have been around three in the morning when Patrick woke me. He seemed on edge and wanted to know if I'd heard the loud noise, like a thunderclap from the ice below us. Whatever you need, you just give me a shout, even if it's in the middle of the night. I glibly reassured him when he, we, we landed. He'd taken me and my word. I tried to put his mind to rest, explaining that the ice often cracks and, given, and that given the absence of any other noise around us, it's easy to imagine things. What we normally hear, though, are muffled thuds, like something splitting beneath us, the noise an enormous stone will make when it lands with a thud on a mountainous terrain. I suggested he go back to sleep with the assurance that there was nothing to worry about. Not that I was wholly convinced either. Clearly, when you're deep in the Arctic, you shouldn't rule anything out, no matter how small and seemingly insignificant. A few minutes after my chat with Patrick, I heard it too. The noise he'd been talking about. It was the ice flowing powerful and inexorable beneath us. Uh, okay, that's kind of spooky. Um, you want to tell me more about what that, that was yeah. about? Yeah, so the, the book um, narrates a day in the field over, over the Greenland ice sheet uh, with my, um, with my colleagues, uh, Ian, Patrick, uh, and Alison and Christine. And, um, 
And uh, we, I basically narrate since the beginning of the day, um, how the day starts here in the tent in the Greenland ice sheet until the end of the same day where we try to collect data uh, that is going to help us understand the evolution of Greenland, but also try to capture the escaping features of a superglacial drain, a lake that is draining. And uh, the part that a I was really... A superglacial lake. Uh, can, you, uh, can you explain yeah, what that is? Superglacial lakes are these lakes that form in the summer over the ice sheet because of depression, uh, the topography. And they fill with water during the, the summer, the meltwater. Um, the pressure that the water exerts on the ice... Uh, can be strong enough to crack the thick ice, we're talking about after uh, um, half a mile, a mile thick, uh, through the bottom, through the rock ice uh, interface at the bedrock. And uh, and the water can be swallowed in a, in a matter of very few minutes. Uh, and, and so the, this can create ice quakes and this accelerates the flow of the ice toward the ocean. Um, so we were there hunting um, the life cycle of these lakes. And uh, what I'm describing is um, the morning um, when I wake up and I'm uh, I'm narrating what Patrick did the night before after we landed, in which he hears uh, this loud sound, which, you know, if you think about it, uh, you're sleeping on a block of ice that is about a mile thick and it's flowing below you. And uh, there's cracks opening around you at a very slow pace, but you know that despite you're safe, most of the time anything can happen. And you hear this loud noise coming from below. You never know what's going to open below you. And of course, despite rationally, you know that can't happen in a matter of time so fast that you cannot escape. It's still very, very scary because it puts you in perspective of the giant and the, and the majestic um, presence of the ice. And so Patrick woke me up. It was his first experience. Uh, and uh, Patrick has been my student at City College, uh, postdoc at uh, Lamont, and now he's a research scientist at Lamont. So we've been knowing each other forever. And uh, I told him, you know, wake me up if you hear anything, if you're afraid. I wanted to reassure him. And uh, I really I, I really thought that he was uh, he was scared or he was just uh, you know anxious to to be there yeah. for the first time but then I heard it really and and it's kind of strange it's like somebody hammering from below on a block of ice and you see where is it coming from and uh, how powerful it has to be in order for me to hear it through the thick ice yeah um, so is it more scary than than beautiful out there it is, what is it like to me it's always more beautiful I will not call it scary I think uh, and as I mentioned to you Kevin and um in the podcast, in the in the blog, uh, the Earth Institute, uh, it, it, I'm very fearful, uh, in the sense that um, when you there are when you move on the ice, there are rules, written rules and unwritten rules that you need to follow, uh, safety rules, and uh, and I think as long as you follow those rules, um, you are 99.9 percent safe. So it's more the emotion. Uh, it's more the fear, and it can be both rational and very subconscious fear of being in the presence of something so powerful that, despite being so quiet, has the energy, the power to shape the entire world. Think about uh, the Hudson Valley. Think about Manhattan. The reason why we can build such tall buildings is because the ice was here and exposed the hard rock where we can build all these tall buildings. And, and so this creates, of course, the fear of what if we miss something that we don't know 
And uh, it could be like a breath of this giant can can basically take us away in nothing. And uh, we know this has happened in the past to colleagues. And uh, um, therefore, it's not about being scared. It's about being fearful and being um, safe. But yes, there is definitely this, I will call it baseline rumor within your head that gives you some adrenaline because the unknown is both exciting and uh, um, disorienting. Uh, and fearful. Yeah. So these, um, <clears throat> the polar regions are really changing very fast. I think most of our listeners know that and it's having an effect on the ice. Um, what is happening like in places like this as the climate changes? Yeah. Uh, Greenland, uh, um, if you look at, for example, um, sea level rise contribution, just to, to make a, a sort of a chart, um, if you exclude the thermal expansion of the ocean, which basically means that the more we warm the ocean, the more it expands and the more sea level rises, uh, which now actually is about 50% of the total sea level rise of the contribution, 50% of the total sea level rise that we see worldwide. Uh, Greenland is actually the largest single active contributor to sea level rise with about 20, 25% of total sea level rise just from melting Greenland. Yeah, that's what I was going to try and get at. I mean, why why should we here in the Hudson Valley in New York City, why do we care about what happens? And, uh, and the reason, and again, and the reason is, uh, and that 20, this 20, 25% coming from Greenland is reaching our shores. Uh, it's driving our life, um, not only because of uh, the constant increase of sea level rise. Just think about it, beginning of the mid of 1800 or beginning of 1900, uh, you can imagine the water was uh, at your feet and now it will be basically above your knee. Uh, that's the kind of, uh, of rise, oh. uh, rise we saw over the past 100, 120 years. Wow. Uh, but the important thing is that for Greenland is that the melting Greenland is accelerating. And as it accelerates, it does accelerate also the sea level rise. Now, the sea level rise, the water from melting and the, and the ocean doesn't rise equally everywhere. The ocean is not a bathtub, as many of us and many people were, uh, were thought in the past, uh, also to simplify a problem um, for a better lack of information. But now we know that if, if we put some water, uh, water from Greenland, uh, that water will redistribute itself based on the gravity of the earth, based on the ocean currents, based on the bathymetry of the coastline. And so you have some areas uh, that when you combine the thermal expansion and different effects where sea level is rising much faster than other places, and it will rise faster than other places. And so the consequences are different. On the East Coast, in this case, we are still seeing, based on the currents, a lot of relative contributions that come from Greenland. Now, the good news for us, for example, is that the more Greenland melts, the less the relative contribution of the sea level to our areas on the East Coast United States will come from Greenland. And the reason is the gravitational pull of this huge block of ice on the water now is basically almost retaining a lot of the water close to Greenland. And so it's contributing to have more water uh, nearby, displaced geographically nearby the East Coast of the United States. Mm, the more mass we lost from Greenland, we lose from Greenland, the more this gravitational pull will, uh, will be 
released, the more the water will be able to escape farther away. And of course, this is not a good news for our friends on the West Coast and other uh, areas of the United States. So right. in general, right. Greenland is actively contributing. It modulates, of course, uh, the, uh, the uh, acceleration of sea level rise. It does also control how the water is going to be distributed. And of course, uh, the more melting we have now and in the future, the less time we will have to proactively take measures of mitigation resiliency to um, mm-hmm. face what the consequences almost certain are of the uh, of a world where floods, sea level rise, storm surges, and extreme events are likely going to be increasing and providing more and more impact on our lives. Mm-hmm. So back to the uh, the ice sheet itself. Um, in one part, you describe the ice sheet as an elephant and uh, human beings as a virus or a germ. Yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> I felt bad um, because I was rereading this part. And uh, I, of course, I thought about COVID uh, and I thought about everything that everybody's going through. And uh, I I promised myself to find uh, another um another figurative expression in the future when I want to show these things. But what I meant is uh, it's very similar to what we're living. You have these invisible beings uh, that are going around, which are almost taken one by one. They are microscopic. Uh, and, uh, um, and But when working together, uh, the ecosystem uh, disruption on 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 the on the host, which would be us, uh, can be so strong and devastating that can really uh, uh, make things precipitate very quickly. And uh, and unfortunately, this is what we see with COVID. Yeah, I think uh, you have that. Uh, well, I think you have that exactly right. I mean, it struck a chord yeah. with me that you know the ice sheet is so huge, we are so tiny, and yet we have such a great effect. On yeah, it. and this this is exactly what I think. And every time I see it in front of the ocean, every time I see it in front of the ice sheet, uh, huge forests. I try to I try to think what I can do. I, I can do nothing. I mean, I can even break a branch that is thicker than maybe a couple of inches. I don't have the strength. I don't have the, the energy. But then if you think that slowly, constantly, uh, almost what we think passively, but it's a very active and violent work towards, against uh, nature, we're making these changes. And, and the power, I think, of, of humans on making these changes is that we're not just making one change. We're just making many changes that are strongly connected into the system, and we altering the completely the feedbacks among the different uh, components of our, of our of the ecosystem, so that you reach a point where the system cannot recover anymore. Not because one single element is shut down, but because it's the connection and the whole function from a holistic point of view of the of the system that is shut down. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that you know I, I think it happens a lot um, in the you know in, in the approach that humans have with the nature capital and uh, and environmental resources. Yeah. So you've obviously thought about this a lot on the, the philosophical level on many levels. Um, how did you get into this line anyway? Was it a direct so, so something I, you always want to do? So I I came to this country twenty years ago and I. I loved learning to speak, you know, English and I fell in love with Portuguese because my daughters and my ex-wife is Brazilian. So I learned all these many languages. But then a few years ago, I felt that I needed to reconnect with my mother language because I, the, um, 
the universe of of words and how do I connect it to the to my thinking in Italian? Being grown up with the language is more natural, and I can really dig into into the pockets of my vocabulary to find the right word that fulfills my uh, my satisfaction. Right. So you and wrote so, the book in, in Italian. And um, so, yeah. And so in yeah. reality, the story started because I started to, I wanted to write. I want I went to Colombia. I looked for, hey, I want to take a writing class. I didn't have the time being busy, of course, in my job. Uh, I asked people, what should I do? And one, one good friend told me, do one only thing, write, start writing. Um, and, uh, and so I started to write for the Italian newspaper, La Repubblica. I sent in one piece. They loved it. Uh, to my surprise, they invited me to have a column there, which I still do have a weekly column where I write about climate. And then from there, um, the publisher, Italian publisher approached me asking me if I was interested to write a book, if I wanted to, uh, to focus on, on that experience. And then, um, I really enjoyed that experience. Yeah. Uh, the book then, uh, is being translated now, uh, in, uh, in English. It's coming in the UK with this version, uh, three different publisher at the end of the month. It's coming in Spain at the end of the month, in the Netherlands, and they're doing the English uh, the Polish and Turkish translation as well. Wow. Great. So, um, how did you, uh, I think the prerequisite question is how did you get into studying ice? I was a, a young Italian engineer who did not want to go electrical engineering engineer who did not want to go into a, to companies because I realized it was not cut for me. Uh, and I, I applied to a PhD program, um, where they had to, um, to, to grants, one now working in the snow and now looking at the ocean. Now coming from South Italy, my former mentor, he told me like, I should give you some ocean work or we need somebody working on snow. And I did not grow up, uh, as I mentioned in the book, uh, climbing mountains or uh, outdoors uh, or everything else. Um, and so I fell in love with this material, snow um, and then ice. And, um, and I think some of my passion that hopefully uh, is manifested in the book comes from the fact that it's almost like I'm reborn as an adult uh, and I'm given a chance to love the outdoors, the ice and the snow, as I didn't have when I was young, when I grew up. And uh, and I, I'm probably having this emotional experience uh, related to my rational uh, adulthood and also to my profession that is really reaching me. And I'm very thankful and, and that's why probably I'm very passionate and I'm still strongly, um, mysteriously attracted by the ice and snow and the cryosphere in general. Mm -hmm. So, um, how do you get to these research sites? We are funded, uh, generally by NSF or NASA. We have to fly, uh, NSF being are, the National Science, National Science Foundation. Um, and if we are funded through them, but then there is a direct flight from Schenectady funded by them and operated by the Air National Guard that flies to Greenland. Uh, it takes about five hours with a stop in Goose Bay in Canada to refuel. Otherwise, the alternative is there is no direct flight from uh, um, from the United States to Greenland. And the alternative, of course, the alternative is going through Iceland or Denmark. And then from there, take another flight. Then once on the coast, uh, we, um, we went to the town where we have to move to the ice. We are basically, uh, uh, we use helicopter. Uh, we have to pack, of course, everything. Um, and then we set up the camp and we stay there. Um, we are, so to say, quotation marks abandoned uh, in the on the ice. So you're then, yeah, you're flying in by helicopter. You're not we're flying in. by helicopter. Yes, yeah. and we take everything with us, and we take 
back everything with us. So yeah. So uh, what I want to know is what's on your packing list aside from warm clothes and tents and you know the stuff that people would normally think of. Is there things that people would not think of? That there's everything. Bring? I mean, uh, it's the the list of things to bring. It, it, it's never um, it, it's never complete. And of course, it depends on um, several factors. Like, for example, what is the maximum load that you can have with a helicopter? Uh, how many flights you have that you can afford? Remember that in, in the helicopter in Greenland, um, it costs about five to six thousand dollars per hour just to rent a helicopter there uh, yeah. from Greenland there, and it takes about at least you have to come, you know, think about two three hours just to do one small field deployment. So it, it, it gets expensive, but, um, yes, definitely there are things that, um, different kind of tapes, for example, you want a metal tape, a rubber tape, you know, transparent tape and tape is never enough. Um, little, little tools that you never uh, thought they could be helpful. And even just uh, little stuff that you throw into your, into your, uh, uh you know, toolbox, uh, and say, you never know, this might be helpful and you reopen it and you just use it. Um, it, I think field work what fascinates me and fascinated me at the beginning is really the fact that you it, it's a full project every time. It's almost like being a producer. You need to think about everything. You have a budget. You need to make things work and you need to make it happen with what you have. And you need to pay attention to the smallest details. And also importantly, you need to be able to uh, to create a team and 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 uh, lead in in a in a, in a collaborative way so that everybody performs well, they're happy and, uh, and you take home the results. Um, and, and trust me, every time you see a dot on a point of a graph that tells this was collected in the field, there is so much work behind it that, um, I don't think that people understand or realizes, uh, realize, um, uh, by now, but that's, that's what you should think when you look at a dot over a graph there. Yeah. What about, um, I think you mentioned the coffee was like the main thing that you. Coffee. I forgot coffee once and, uh, I was hated by most of the team, uh, the older team, but Patrick, Patrick doesn't drink coffee. Um, but, uh, I, but you know, I have to, something I did not write in the book is that uh, (laughs) this is funny. Uh, Once the lake collapsed, uh, you know, um, this was a time where you were allowed to bring uh, alcohol to Greenland. Now you're not anymore. And, uh, um, and we had a, a coffee liqueur. So uh, we were trying to um, uh, fool ourselves, sipping uh, and wetting our lips in the morning with some coffee liqueur, thinking that we were having coffee. But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I was ever right. forgiven by that's, my team. I don't know. Once I was, uh, I was on assignment for National Geographic once in the Yukon, and I was landed with some researchers by ski plane on, a, on an ice field for a couple of weeks. And uh, one of the first things we did was we dug a latrine. And uh, after a while, the photographer goes, uh, well, where's the toilet paper? And of course, that wasn't on the packing list. There's no, there's no room in the, in the plane. <laughs> the expedition leader just says, the leader just said, I think you'll find that using snow is curiously refreshing. <laughs> you know well, what? Uh, he was right. So I don't know yeah. how you deal with that. And you don't have to tell me. Well, we, no, we, 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 we don't, we didn't forget. Uh, we usually um, are very careful about things, but you know, to be honest, uh, it's a very unique place for, for many things just to collect. I don't want to go into details, but you know, you wake up in the morning, <laughs> uh, you wake up in the morning and we were together on the, uh, not on the ice sheet, Kevin, uh, you know, two years ago, um, or the past right. two years ago. And, uh, yeah. um, 
Uh, and uh, we did not camp on the ice, but, you know, on the tundra. But uh, I assume you can remember the beauty of opening uh, your the, the zipper of your tent and just facing that landscape. Um, but yes, That's you know, right, definitely, right, right. definitely if you, um, I mean, it's, I, I will forgive myself not bringing coffee uh, if I had not. For example, thought to bring a cable that will compromise entirely our experiment. Uh, I remember, for example, also one time we had this uh, steam drill, which is something that uh, is a lot of a backpack um, uh, bucket shaped that contains some gas, and it comes out with a hose that is a cylindrical and it, it generates vapor uh, uh, steam, and then you leave it on the ice, and then it drills down, and it's used to basically drill cylindrical hole to put your stations and other poles. Uh, and I remember we had this problem that uh, we had a leak and, ex- and suddenly this, uh, some a part of it exploded. And so we had to fix everything with some rope and, uh, and, and tape and other things that we had in the pocket. And, uh, and this is also what I'm talking about, uh, being in the field. And uh, it's a production. You need to make things work because there's so much at stake. It's just not about the data. It's also the people who are relying on the data you collect, the students, the postdocs and colleagues and other people and, and the funders. Let's remember that the National Science Foundation, NASA, and other government agencies are funded by taxpayers' money. So it is a huge responsibility to spend them on. Yeah. So uh, um, earlier on, you you mentioned the supra, the supra glacial lake, which is the lake on top of the ice. And the fact was, um, you were quite near this thing when it drained. In fact, you had been like right next to it just or, just before it drained. Um, can you just tell me about that experience and what that was yeah, like? Yeah, well, that's uh, something I, I'm excited about. It. Of course, I'm not proud of it because it, it, it speaks uh, danger. Um, but um, definitely um, the the idea to drop the sensor in a place that was so close to the mouth uh, through which the lake uh, drained um I mean, these are, this is also, it, it was definitely um, something that made us think, uh, especially after you you basically uh, lay down horizontal at the edge of, of this moonland, which is basically how we call this huge hole, hole uh, in the ice uh, through which the water flows. And imagine something that is, uh, I think there is a picture in the book, and uh, um, you have this, this hole that is about 10 meters, 30 feet in diameter diameter and uh, you're basically staring down about 100 feet and you got this water gushing from the top from inside you, you can see these channels uh pushing the water within the ice it's almost like a, what we call inglacial channels and uh, so such a high pressure uh that definitely it is um it is it is a very unique experience uh and uh, um it is almost, uh, you know, like when you feel when you're hunting for a for a beast and you have a chance to stay as close as possible, knowing that it can be dangerous, but at the same time, uh, you want to get as close as you can because there's something pushing you irrationally to do that. And, uh, um, and that's also what drives a lot of times the adrenaline enthusiasm to, to move to the next steps. Yeah, I remember, um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, we were uh, in Greenland together um, and we did come across a Mulan. And I found it quite scary to to be even I don't know dozens of yards from it, and just see the water rushing down and thinking, well, what if I fall in? Like, what if this piece of ice I'm I'm standing on is going to break off? What will be the yeah. last thing I think as I'm going down that hole? And yeah, and and this is something unfortunately that um, 
And uh, I, I just wanted to talk briefly about this because uh, this we lost a colleague this summer. Yes, um, Connie Stephan. Connie Stephan. Connie Stephan was a great um, was a great friend, and Connie had been there for thirty years in a row. Um, it, Connie disappeared into a crevasse um, full of water. Um, the body had never been found. I think it happened on August tenth um, uh, or uh, or slightly uh, or the twentieth, something like that. But um, w- he was a super experienced person and very careful person. He just went to get a bio break or to go for a walk outside the perimeter. Apparently, outside the perimeter that was set up. Visibility was low. There was a snowfall recent that was covering some of the cracks. Maybe enhanced melting has accelerated the opening of these cracks. And he thought that was not the case because he had been in the camp for 30 years, Swiss camp that he founded. But that happened. And and I think uh, there's nothing we can do about it, unfortunately. What we can do is remember that safety and all the precautionary measures that we learn need, uh, need to be taken are there for a reason. And this is especially true for uh, all the young people who are stepping to the field. Uh, after 30 years, 20 years, uh, small accidents can have huge consequences where you are in the field there. So always think it very carefully. And uh, if somebody doesn't make fun of these rules because they think they're too heavy or just makes fun of you because, they say, hey, you're too, I don't think that means that the person is a good team member. Um, safety is the first and most important thing uh, in the field. Yeah, that's that's that was a, a terrible thing, and I'm I'm very sad uh, and sorry about your friend. I know he was a friend of many uh, people yes. uh, yeah. in this field. Um, one thing I learned about you a couple years back, um, you have like a like physical signs of your commitment to the cryosphere. You have several giant snowflakes tattooed on your arm. Uh, maybe some other places too. I don't know. You only showed me your arm. Uh, one I remember was dedicated to your mom. You want to tell me about those tattoos and what they mean? <laughs> now you make me look so Italian, uh, which I am. I wasn't thinking that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You are Italian, but I don't know what that's with the snowflake. Hey, I, I am proud of that, and I'm happy to to um, you know to speak about this. Um, I was just making a, you know a joke and making fun. Uh, yeah. Yes, I do have snowflakes tattoo, uh, snowflake tattoos on my arm and uh, um, on my right arm, um, and uh, I've been collecting them in different places. So the idea I started was that every snowflake is different. And every time I had a trip or a, a voyage or a journey or an experience that I thought worthy um, to to remember, I basically added one. I think I, as a just the snowflakes uh, because I have others, but uh, snowflakes they're probably now about eleven. And uh, yeah, and one of the it's the twelve branches snowflakes, the one you're referring to, which is very rare. Uh, let's remember to our you know um, uh, friends uh, that. Um, um, Snowflakes have six branches. Uh, don't believe into Macy's snowflakes, uh, snowflakes with five, seven branches. But there are sometimes 12 branches snowflake, and that's very rare. And so after she came out from a very delicate surgery several years ago, I decided to dedicate that to her. Uh, I do have also a Maori snowflake that people did in New Zealand um, uh, based on a story I told them. And I have a Hawaiian snowflake. Uh, which is a wave wrapping up a snowflake, and the tattooer in Hawaii, they look at me and say, are you coming to Hawaii to tattoo a snowflake? 
you're yeah. not living the right place. So, and I said, let's work together. Let's see what we can come up with. Um, so yes, <laughs> that's uh, that, a, a snowflake as a story in the, in the story itself. But I, well, there, I mean, there is a little bit of snow on top of the highest altitudes of Hawaii. Yes, but it's not the most uh, common tattoo that are asked yeah. to, um, to make uh, a snowflake. Yeah, so I, but I think you take ice very personally. Um, are you sad that that it's disappearing so fast in so many places? I am. I take ice very personally because I care about the because if it has shaped my life, and I built a relationship with the ice because it controls the people, the lives of many, and I do feel a, a responsibility as a scientist. Um, to, to have a social um, involvement and, uh, and social commitment. Um, it does make me sad. Uh, it does make me also um, angry sometimes uh, to, see, uh, to see that people tend to forget that beside a natural disaster, which is ethically wrong, this is also a human disaster. Um, we're starting to see more and more climate migrants. We're starting to see more desertification, uh, and and this is all connected to you know um, and stems from where the ice you know what the ice is feeling and and is uh, going through. Um, so I I personally yes um, I, I'm very I'm very sad. I'm also very disappointed about some of the um, um, you know some of the attitude that we have been knowing uh, that the ice is. Going away for many, for many years now, and uh, um, and and I think we're starting to see the consequences. How do we, for example, we could put a, a number of every gigaton or every kilo of ice we lost in Greenland, how much would cost to the world? Uh, but how many lives does it take? Also, so in general, I feel sad because we are somehow altering also the one of the last few wild places that are left and when i say wild many people think that wild means that where humans have not still reached uh, and where nature can still thrive freely uh, but you know I, I don't think there are any of those places in the world left uh, there are a few places in the amazon uh, and i see the ice as one of these few places left uh, in the in the world, um, even what people consider the outdoors, and they call it wild, that's not wild anymore. That's uh, the ecosystem adapting to um, uh, it's adapting to what happens uh, and driven by humans. Think about uh, what's called weedy species uh, like the deers uh, and kind of birds that are adapting to us humans and are uh, dropping off other kind of species. So uh, this makes me sad, yes. Uh, the fact that we are somehow destroying, altering, and controlling one of the last few wild places, uh, and that we're doing it from very far away in a very subtle way, but extremely violent. Uh, I, I, I don't want to sound light, but this is something uh, very similar to some of the social microviolence that we know are happening around us, that taken one by one, they might not look as, um, as important to, a, to, a, 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 to an eye that is not trained or to somebody who doesn't care too much, but those are the factors that ultimately can make huge damage. And that's exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, is there any hope for the cryosphere or do we just 
cry for the cryosphere? So the 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 hope is I don't think I think we should think in two in two ways. There is the one way in which do we want to save the planet as it was? Do we want to save ourselves and this planet? Um, the approach that sustainability takes, the approach that many um, um, you know, ecosystem protection takes, they start from the monetary, they start from the economic and the socioeconomic value. And of course, then you reach to a point where you can, uh, you have to make compromises by continuing growing wealth for sustaining our, the growth of our society. And at the same time, deploying the resources that are deploying, but maybe at the slowest rate, um, there's very little discussion about recovery at global scale. You can do it at a regional scale. Um, but um, at one effort that I really, uh, I'm really a big, of course, fan, in, and I really um, applaud the work that the colleagues at Lamont, for example, are doing, I'm citing them because I know them better, uh, comes to carbon sequestration, uh, to the uh, offsetting, um, just reducing the emissions, starting from there, uh, con- Finding ways to um, to produce large scale carbon sequestration effect, and of course, starting to give also to communities uh, who know their uh, the the natural value of the land that doesn't come only from the economic perspective, uh, but also from a cultural and from a social perspective, the possibility to help and be integrated in this effort because uh, we we're we're seeing from many work and, and studies and experiences that you need to have the uh, local communities engaged, involved, not only for ethical and, 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 uh, and moral purposes, but also because it's in this way that you can start promoting the recovery of, the, of nature and the, uh, and the collaboration between environment and, uh, and, and social growth that I think we need to find a new paradigm to develop. Mm-hmm. So you, you, it sounds like you think there is some hope if we can there is a this. there is a hope uh, and uh, uh, there is a hope if i think about human race as this multitude of uh, of great people who are willing to fix huge problems and move forward all together in, in a very inspirational way as a, as a community. Uh, I get very depressed when I start talking to people one by one because you then start realize how much the power of one can really affect the, the life of many. And, uh, um, and, and I think uh, the entire concept of power, authority, and, and governance uh, is something that um, is currently undermining also some of the choices that we can make and is stopping us from moving forward. But um, I, I basically alternate from uh, uh, being very optimistic to pessimistic, depending on the point of view. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that some of our colleagues are coming up with a breakthrough solution that help allow us to let's say, cut CO2 emission and, and start sequestering CO2 over the next decades so that um, we, we're starting to, to move toward uh, a, a net zero society and uh, there will be more stimulus also for the economy and uh, the governments to start uh, promoting this. And, uh, uh, and this could be a, a, huge, um, uh, a huge factor. Well, Marco, it's a, it's a pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me. Yeah, the name of Marco's book is The Hidden Life of Ice, Dispatches from a Disappearing World. Uh, you can see links to Marco's work and pictures of him in the field from our trip together on the Pot of the Planet web pages. And uh, maybe we'll even put up a few fo- photos of uh, Marco's snowflake tattoos. Is that okay? Unless you object? Sure. 
<laughs> All right. Okay. Good man. See you around. <laughs>